Hi, everybody. This is Randy Beamer with News for San Antonio, and thanks for listening to San Antonio's Voice, the podcast. Every week we have all kinds of guests with different takes on what's going on, what's important, what's interesting. And today we have the guy who knows everything about COVID and projections of how we're going to do in the future. And joining us also is our assignment editor, Sal Del Cid. Sal? Hey, Randy, you got that right. He is the numbers guy when it comes to COVID-19 data in San Antonio. He is Dr. Juan Gutierrez, the chair of mathematics over at UTSA, and he also happens to be a researcher in infectious diseases. He's been doing it for more than 10 years, and that's come in handy a lot. And he has an incredible background. Uh, he came from Colombia. He's worked with uh, predicting malaria and predictive epidemiology, very interdisciplinary, as he says. And he also had, I thought it was interesting, we were talking, is a punching bag and a guitar in his office, one of the only people in the office right now at UTSA. But I think what he has to say is very important about where we're going in terms of good news, bad news, and what might change all that. He's got some numbers coming out. It's going to be national news next week with um, county-by-county numbers and predictions with those numbers, uh, as well as for Texas. But he gave us a number of uh, predictions as well. So I hope you enjoy it. This is San Antonio's Voice, the podcast with Dr. Juan Gutierrez, UTSA. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. First of all, tell me where we are in Bear County compared to the early estimates and projections, and where do you think we'll be? Bear County seems to be in a good trajectory. Uh, you might remember in June we had explosive growth in the number of cases. Uh, the projections that we had in June was a quarter million cases by now, by the end of summer. That was possible. That was a high end? That was the, the average. Actually, the high end was even higher than that. But what happened is that uh, the governor mandated face masks, and that changed the trajectory of the pandemic in this region. In the entire state of Texas, it put a break. We were heading for disaster in all major cities. That yep. made that big a difference? It made a huge difference. And uh, the data shows very clearly this departure from the trend uh, in the next two weeks after the order to wear face masks. Hmm. So it was the right thing to do, and it was done in a timely manner. I wish it had been done earlier, but. We got what we got. What did that change the projections to now? Uh, San Antonio and, and Burke County are in a peculiar place because we, as you noticed yesterday, we had certain backlogs. Uh, the projections and uh, the data that are coming out of Burr don't coincide, which seems to suggest that there is uh, delays or problems in processing the data. But that aside, uh, we're going to a place in which in the next three months we might see an increase in the number of cases, but it's not going to be as dramatic as uh, was we saw in June. Uh, I couldn't give you an estimate right now because the quality of the data does not permit to give an accurate estimation. Now, the data before, because you were very accurate there up at to, the beginning. Up to June. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, by mid-June, we posted uh, what we expected to be the projection by the end of July. Uh, at that point, we were at around 10,000 cases or even less than that. And the projection is that we would be six weeks later at uh, 45,000 cases. 
the city was at 41,000 reported cases. However, reported and daily cases are not the same in the sense that the epidemiological event, what really happened, does not coincide with the numbers. To give you an example, yesterday there were reported, let's say, 200 cases around that. That doesn't mean that 200 people were infected yesterday. That means that in the last two to three weeks, we had an aggregation of 200 people that were reported yesterday. That's why the number of cases at any given point in time, for any given day, is probably 10% higher than the accumulated, accumulated number of cases that we have due to this lag in reporting. And this is true for, for all municipalities. And those are reported cases. Now, you're projecting reported cases, even though anecdotally I know people who have been told by their doctor, you probably have it, you don't need to test, act as if you have it, mm -hmm. unless you have extreme symptoms. Now, do you take that into account? Uh, it's impossible to track that information. There are no reports of those cases. So particularly in COVID, we are seeing this phenomenon in which asymptomatic and unreported cases are a substantial uh, proportion of the total number of cases in the community. This means that there are cases that the healthcare system simply does not see. We do not know what is going on in this community. And the best that we can do in terms of projections and understand what is happening is we try to make projections based on the cases that we can observe. In other words, we are not projecting the disease. We are projecting the surveillance system, which is not the same. But by projecting, projecting the uh, likely observations that will come out of the surveillance system, uh, we might be informing the public and authorities what is the likely outcome, the outcome that will affect hospital admissions, and other events in the community. People might wonder, how does a mathematician uh, project these kinds of cases and what kind of data you put in? Because they would think data in, data out, how would you know what data to put in? Mm -hmm. Very good question. Uh, and I have that question uh, all the time. Why is a mathematician working in this area? turns out that uh, predictive epidemiology, making projections, is a quantitative area. That is, this is outside the regular area of training of biologists, medical doctors, and other people who one might uh, intuitively associate with infectious disease. In other words, if you ask a doctor to give you a projection, a medical doctor, projection of uh, cases of any disease in the future, if they had not taken statistics, mathematics, computer science courses, etc., they will not be able to answer that question. This is a quantitative science and is dominated by mathematicians, computer scientists, and statisticians, and biologists who have received proper training in quantitative areas. How about nationally? We've heard from task, the White House task force different numbers. Um, are they different? Have they been different? Yes, they are. From so doctors? Let me address the second question that you asked, which is data in, data out, what type of data are we using? For uh, Burr County uh, and the city of San Antonio, there is this joint venture, which is San Antonio uh, Metro Health, it's not department, it's called uh, Metro Health, Just please excuse me. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it finishes in D. District. Uh, district, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, the University of Texas at San Antonio, UTSA, uh, entered a data use agreement with the city 
and with STRAC, which is the South Texas Regional Advisory Council. In the state of Texas, the uh, State Department of Human and, Human and Health Services uh, distributed the responsibility of emergency response to a number of regions in the state. Each region takes care of multiple counties. That was probably a wise decision because Texas is very large. Mm -hmm. So each one of these uh, bodies uh, managed the response in, in our case, 22 counties, Strack. So we entered a data use agreement with the STRAC and the city. Daily, I was receiving every single patient, data related to every single patient. So we could ascertain what, it, what was the true epidemiological event. Let me give you an example. The gold standard is the onset of symptoms for epidemiological purposes. When do you start coughing? When do you develop a fever? And so on. In many cases, that information is just not available. The second best date that we can use uh, to analyze data is the date the sample was collected. You might have already been sick a number of days, you go to the doctor, they order a test, and then could be five days after the onset of symptoms you might get a lab test. You would think that that information is available, but many labs report their results through fax machines with data dumps, uh, and many of these processes processes take place uh, manually. Somebody moves a stack of paper, somebody copies a file, opens the file in Excel, looks what is inside, copy-paste, and this is an error-prone process, and many times the information is just not there. Mm -hmm. The next best date is the date that the information was added to the database. Once you collect all this information, then you are able to do a, a true assessment of where we are. That was the data that we had for Bear County. And that's why uh, the projections until June, that's uh, early July, was the last time that we received uh, high-quality data from, uh, from San Antonio Metro Health District. Uh, up to that point, projections were being accurate at the moment they were made. And this is something very important when we talk about quantitative models. Quantitative models, projections, inform where are we going if we keep our course if we don't change the epidemiological dynamics. If there is a government intervention, for example, a stay-at-home order, uh, an order to wear face masks, order to close bars, or rest, et cetera, those events change the epidemiological dynamics, and then the projection will necessarily change. So that's why there have been a huge range of projections. The first ones came at 2,000 cases, and it was true. We hit exactly the projection at the time that we thought was going to happen, but then the dynamics changed because we started opening businesses. Then we made the projections under those conditions, and those conditions changed again because then we allowed bars to open, and so on, and so on, and so on. And also Memorial Day, 4th of July, did those change, or did you foresee those, or did you put those into the projections? Uh, we don't anticipate, at least in the model that, that we use, we do not anticipate the impact of future events because human behavior is impossible to measure, particularly in this pandemic, because there is a second pandemic, and that is the pandemic of disinformation, not misinformation, disinformation, the intentional release of false information that causes confusion in people. It uh, degrades the discourse around the disease, and it just sends people in, in directions that are just not productive, and just sends the wrong message. Sadly, this is being driven across party lines. 
So some people react in certain way to uh, information, some other people react in a different way. How to predict that behavior? It becomes impossible. Therefore, the projections that we're doing is after an event has been identified, we have to wait at least one week to be able to make the projection of where things are going under the current. Like Labor Day. Like Labor Day. We will not be able to introduce that variable until one or two weeks from now. Hmm. And then we will be able to assess. Where are you in terms of numbers, or are you still projecting down the road what it's going to be like in Bear County and the country? Yes. Actually, uh, we continue the work. The, the test bed of San Antonio gave us a very strong foundation that uh, very few other research groups have to the point that we are able to do estimations for the entire country, which have been finished and they will be published very soon. They will be released publicly on a website so everybody can go and check for every single county in the nation, for every state, and then the aggregation for the entire country. Uh, and then... Where did you get all that data? The data is available from multiple sources, but the data that we have to make those projections is not the epidemiological event, what I just described in terms of the multiple dates that are required. These are public data sets or daily counts. They have been reported and collected by a research group at uh, Johns Hopkins University. And also, this data is being collected and, be, and it's made public by the New York Times. The New York Times data and the Johns Hopkins data are very similar, but there are discrepancies. They count and correct cases in a different way. Uh, the New York Times does an excellent job in correcting cases when there are errors in reporting. But the New York Times data also includes mortality data, which is not present as a daily count in the Johns Hopkins University. So it's the consolidation of these two data sets that allows us to make an estimation for the nation. People might wonder, okay, well, why does Johns Hopkins and New York Times have different data than the government, and wouldn't the governments be better? Uh, which government? CDC, <laughs> CDC or state governments or? In, in the United States, all epidemiological data is collected at the county level. And then we have well over 3,000 counties in the U.S. The exact number is 3,200. Uh, I don't have the exact number. I don't remember it but it's around 3,200 uh, counties. Mm -hmm. That is the number of government entities that are collecting data in this pandemic with very different approaches, very different levels of uh, competency, know-how, expertise, very different levels of funding. So mm -hmm. the outcomes that we're receiving from each one of these sources is uh, slightly different. So your projections based on that different data are limited by the way they're collected, the accuracy. Absolutely right. Now, uh, let me give you an analogy. In uh, 1907, there was a statistician who visited a fair in England. And in that fair, there was a competition. Guess the uh, weight of an ox. Uh, 700 people uh, gave their opinion. Some of the estimates were way off, too light, too heavy. But once the average of all those guesses was taken into account, the average of 700 people were within a few pounds of the true value wow. of the weight of the ox. The average, not the median? The average. Wow. It was the average. And now, so how does that apply to this? Because we have more than 3,000 counties. 
And once we try to estimate what is the impact of this, we aggregate all the counties in one single state to produce the aggregate for the state. And then we take all the states to produce the aggregate of the county. Because we have so many observations, we expect that the average projection and the average observation will match reality. And actually, that's why I opened the computer, because I can show you yes. some of the uh, projections. Uh, these estimations go up to early November. And the reason they go up to November is that uh, after mid-November, with uh, Thanksgiving, we will have a new epidemiological dynamic. We don't know what it is going to be. We just know that uh, during this time, a lot of people are going to travel. Uh, there will be mm, a substantial number of family gatherings. And this is the perfect combination of risk factors to increase the number of cases that we have uh, in, in, of COVID-19. In the state of Texas, at an aggregated 650,000, I'm just looking from the graphic around that, and the estimation is that we will increase by probably 150,000 cases by, by mid-November. And now in terms of the rate of increase? Um, it is slowing down in this moment. Uh, we had very rapid increase in June. In July, we saw an abatement of that trend uh, due most likely to the government or the governor's mandate to wear face masks. That had a profound impact. After that, we don't have to introduce any other event, and the data is explained just with the, uh, the dynamics that we have. Then, of course, we have for every county in the state how about uh, Bear County there? Let's take a look at Bear County. Bear County is a totally different animal because we have this uh, uncertainty about the observations that have been made. And if you observe this trend in this part of the graphic, uh, here and, and above, um, that change in the rate of growth is not explained by any event that has taken place in the city. So it's, uh, it's difficult to speculate uh, what is the source of that. In Bear County, is it up, down, uh, did it drop quickly? It's, uh, in this moment, uh, linear, meaning that you can almost uh, put a straight line through the last month of data and adjust it very well. That means that uh, it can go down or can go up, and it could be pushed either way by local dynamics. Burke County is a very peculiar um, county when it comes to, to epidemiological data. How, how is it different in terms of, uh, well, you're talking about the data. Mm -hmm. How and why is it different? Uh, it's hard to tell, but if you go back and uh, in, in try to understand what happened in terms of the transformations, uh, the changes that were taking place at Metro Health, many processes were improved uh, around uh, the begin beginning of July. And that certainly changed the way we look at the pandemic and the data that we have. Is it the case that before we were having inaccurate numbers and now we're getting, having better numbers? It is possible. Uh, it is possible that the epidemics the pandemic has changed in San Antonio. But 
We cannot explain it with one single phenomenon. There is no single event, large event, that uh, explains the change that we have experienced in the data. And I'm going to go to the last one that was uh, consumed high quality data, which was uh, June 27th. In June 27th, this is uh, the model superimposed with data. So we had nearly perfect agreement between the two because I was using data from San Antonio uh, Metro Health District and STRAC. What you see on this other screen is using data from Johns Hopkins University and the New York Times. And these are daily counts. And by daily counts, we are unable to produce the perfect fit that we had before. So that's why when we try to look at uh, how does this reflect or affect the projection, that's Burr County. Okay. So the active cases for Burr County gives us a peak in uh, early July. And now the projection for that is? And the projection for that is it means that it keeps dropping, dropping, dropping until we reach uh, low numbers going into um, in, in the next uh, couple of months. So according to this, right now we should be under a thousand, probably. I mean, this is hard to see the scale. Hmm. And now, are you encouraged by all that, or what's? Uh, it is encouraging once we do the aggregation of all the counties in the state of Texas, because the average of many observations might be informative. That's why it's very important for us, for the state of Texas, once you put all these counties together, the uh, agreement between data and model for the state of Texas is remarkably good. This gives us confidence that the rate of growth is indeed, indeed decreasing. And in absence of uh, very large interventions from the governor or uh, municipalities, it's very likely that we will reach a number around 800,000 cases by uh, by mid-November in the deaths? state of Texas. Deaths, it's uh, a complicated estimation uh, for a very simple reason. Mm. In this moment, the uh, case fatality rate for COVID-19 in the U.S. is 2.4%. Around the world, when we consider 188 regions of the world, the case fatality rate is 2%. There has been an attempt by uh, multiple media venues and very vocal people to minimize the case fatality rate of COVID-19. For example, indicating that there was a uh, report from the CDC showing that only 6% of people who died of COVID-19 had no comorbidities. And this has been, there has been an attempt to use this as the uh, explanation of why COVID-19 is not that bad. But there is fatally wrong because over half of the U.S. population has some sort of comorbidity. Furthermore, in that study, uh, there were over 70,000 cases of pneumonia identified as a comorbidity. But pneumonia could be caused by COVID-19. Like flu causes Exactly. Pneumonia. Flu causes pneumonia. So what killed the person, the pneumonia or the flu? Well, had the person not had the flu in the first place, pneumonia would have never developed. 
So they reported data, but the interpretation of the data was uh, distorted. So anyway, the, the, besides the distractions, it's very simple to simply take the number of deaths in the U.S. today, confirmed COVID-19 deaths, and divide that number by the total number of confirmed COVID-19 cases. You will arrive at 2.4%, which is very, very high mortality. It's more than 20 times the mortality of influenza. COVID-19 is a deadly disease. Uh, any attempt to minimize it is misguided, and it's hard to tell whether it's rooted in malice or ignorance or just plain incompetence. We cannot minimize this disease. It has the potential to still uh, cause lasting damage to our communities. As a matter of comparison, uh, if you take single events in American history and you sort them by uh, number of deaths, uh, the top three are the pandemic of uh, 1918, World War II, and uh, the Civil War. COVID-19 already surpassed World War I, which used to be the fourth largest single event by number of American deaths. And now it's the fourth one. It has the potential to become number one. So we have to tell our communities, don't lower your guard. COVID-19 is still around. Any vaccine will be ready later in 2021. It's very unlikely that we will have it in 2020. Do you worry that some of these projections that may be leveling off or slowing down might encourage people to hear it? Well, you know, it's like in June or May when it looked like we were, we were doing well. Uh, it is possible. Uh, when we make an observation, then we change the phenomenon observed. That goes back to physics, uh, the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that also applies in epidemiology. When we tell people that we're going to a very bad place, like what happened in June. We made a lot of noise telling people we are going to a quarter million cases. We have to be alert. We have to change course. We changed course. We never saw that. Well, this could be the opposite. We could tell people this is going to plateau. This might increase confidence and might actually trigger uh, more contagion. So it's a balance. It's impossible to predict human behavior. Uh, so we leave that for the conversation that we could have next year. And the mathematics itself, the projections, then influence the human behavior. It, it is correct. It, these projections could influence human behavior, could influence policymaking, and that might have an effect in epidemiological dynamics. That is absolutely right. But the um, magnitude of that effect, it's impossible to predict. And now, uh, one last question in terms of the the numbers and rate of growth, if you can do this kind of thing, by Thanksgiving. You think it'll be how? Before by, Thanksgiving. By Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, uh, we will see an increase in the number of cases in Texas, according to what we just saw in that plot. Don't ask me the number, it's, uh, it's there. Uh, we will see an increase in the number of cases. Uh, it's impossible to make a projection beyond Thanksgiving because we just do not know how our communities are going to react in terms of uh, the diligence with uh, these preventive measures. So we have to wait and see. One other thing to get in before, you're not just a mathematician. You're, uh, you've done this before with malaria, 
other epidemiological things. So this is not just the strict numbers background that you have. Uh, oh, that is absolutely right. My training is in uh, engineering. It's in mathematics. I have a doctoral degree in mathematics, a traditional doctoral degree in mathematics with an area specialization in, uh, in biomedical sciences. That is, I have been doing infectious disease for over a decade. I have had the fortune to participate in a number of international research efforts, uh, first for malaria, and that's what I did since uh, 2010 until last year. And particularly in the case of malaria, my research was centered around the problem of asymptomatic carriers of malaria. So when COVID-19 started, given the very fast spread that it exhibited at the beginning, I knew immediately before it was a known matter uh, in the media that this was driven by asymptomatic carriers. Only that could explain the very fast spread. And we jumped with uh, other collaborators into this problem with the assumption that we had asymptomatic carriers in this disease. We said that in February. We published that uh, by mid-March. There was tremendous opposition because of a, a study by the Chinese Center for Disease Control that came out in February 11th saying that only 1% of cases were asymptomatic. But going back to that study, what they really said, they really had a, uh, a study in which the criteria for inclusion in the study was the presence of symptoms. So it was surprising that they found any asymptomatic at all. And that became reality for one month. The World Health Organization, the CDC, uh, said that. Then they came a study of the Princess cruise ship and some of those evacuees came to San Antonio in February, which incidentally is the day zero found computationally huh. uh, when they arrived. Uh, they have more asymptomatics, but it was a cruise ship uh, filled with uh, retirees, mm -hmm. which are the age group most likely to develop symptoms. Then there have been other studies, so, and then now we know that it's probably more than half of the cases that are asymptomatic, and this is driving the growth of the disease. That was thanks to the, or, or our insight was given thanks to the experience that we had doing research in malaria for many years. So uh, doing research in malaria, I had to learn about epidemiology, vector dispersal, physiological responses, immunology, something called systems biology that has to do with molecular interactions, uh, cellular level, uh, all the way to computational drug design that has to mm -hmm. do with uh, quantum mechanics and, and very small molecules. Last question, are you worried watching the way schools are opening? Not just here in San Antonio and elementary schools and UTSA that seems to be opening safely, but colleges across the country, schools across the country, different places, different ways that they're opening. Do you worry that could really change the projection? It could. It has the potential to really wreak havoc in uh, in our communities, particularly the campuses that have opened full force have experienced large outbreaks and they have been forced into operating online. And that is very detrimental to students. When you tell them one thing, there are planning plans that need to take place, housing, etc. suddenly to disrupt all that. So I, um, it's very likely that many campuses across the nation will default to operating online for the spring semester to prevent the disruption that uh, we observed during the, during the fall semester. Do you expect a second wave? 
uh, yes, we do expect a second wave, uh, assuming that this virus behaves like other respiratory viruses. And for other respiratory viruses, we observe an increase of cases during winter. So we might be in for a second wave. That could be larger than the first wave.